91.3 FM Stereo. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, the voice of the Cape. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and good evening. Welcome to Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. Now, before I start the show, I just want to share some information that we have. Um, we have received, or rather, we have eyewitnesses of gun shooting that's been happening in Salt River. So, we just want to inform the community to be careful if you are coming out to Salt River. Um, there's been some um, unfortunate situations here. There's no police on the scene, but we have had eyewitness reports of gunshots going off here in Salt River. So let's focus now on burning issues. So the past week has been an emotional trigger for many South Africans as we witnessed mass protests in the wake of the murder of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, pinned on the ground by a white police officer in Minneapolis, the United States. Now, the police officer forced his knee on Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes before Floyd suffocated to death. The phrase, I can't breathe, which was George Floyd's last few words, has become the slogan of mass protests worldwide. In fact, right now, we are witnessing on Al Jazeera live the memorial service, it seems like, for George Floyd. If you have Al Jazeera, you can watch that as well. There are some uh, reports coming out of different um, memorial services happening for George Floyd. Now, Floyd's death is just another senseless murder of black citizens who are victims of systemic racism and police brutality. For this reason, the Black Lives Matter movement galvanized together for solidarity protests around the world, including here in South Africa, highlighting the global fight against anti-black racism, discrimination and oppression. But if we look closer to home, we had a similar case right here on our doorsteps. Colin Corsa, a 40-year-old resident of Alexandra Township, was killed by the South African National Defence Force at the start of the national lockdown. So why was there no real outrage about his killing? Do black lives not matter in South Africa? And what is the role of the Muslim community in all of this? Is it time that we confront anti-black racism from within the Muslim community? And also, how will we confront this anti-black racism? So that's our burning issue tonight, a topic that I know is very sensitive, but one that needs to be discussed. In fact, if it's sensitive to you, it's probably something that you need to be dealing with, quite frankly. So now we're going to be welcoming our first two guests to the show. The first guest is Fasiha Hassan. Fasiha, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Thank you for having me. Fasiha, you are described on our show as an activist. Is that an accurate description? Um, yeah, so I'm just doing this interview more in my personal capacity, not my professional. Okay, fantastic. And then we also have Tandile Kona, who is the Muslim Youth Movement President. Tandile, good evening and welcome to Burning Issue. Good evening, uh, Yazid, and uh, thank you very much for having me. Great stuff. So, 
We are, of course, bringing different voices to the show this, this evening and we want to ask the question. We want to be introspective tonight. We want to look at the Muslim community and our role, you know, in a, a, a non-racist society. So what are you, tell us a bit about your thinking around the black Muslim and also the Muslim uh, sort of uh, activism that we need to be looking at in this time. Either guest can go first. Okay, let me let me go first here. Okay. Um, yeah, but, uh, I must say that I'm I'm, I'm going to disappoint you because I'm not going to answer your question as to what can we do uh, to fight racism in the Muslim community because I am I'm just uh, tired by by uh, us having to do the heavy lifting in trying to uh, solve the problems that are caused by racism. What needs to happen is the people who live with racists, who tolerate racists amongst them, to speak up. We need to expose racists. We need to isolate racists. We cannot expect people who are at the receiving end of racism to be the ones to provide solutions. You know, the cry by, by the African-Americans, in fact, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old cry. It, it comes from uh, Franz Fanon's quote that... Uh, 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 that I can't breathe phrase is an old, it's a very old uh, uh, phrase. So black people have been complaining, they've been uh, crying, they've been protesting, but I think it's about time that black people hand over the baton to those who live with racist among racists among themselves, to the racists themselves to do the hard work, to those who tolerate racism in their circles. So I don't think that it's time for black people to do the heavy lifting for the Muslim community and try to teach it. In fact, the Muslim community are the, is the last grouping of people that should be taught about uh, about uh, the ills or, or the effects of racism. So I don't think that uh, it's an appropriate approach. We've tried that approach; it hasn't worked. But I don't think it's an appropriate approach to say what can to ask those who are at the receiving end of racism what can we do to to solve racism. We've said over many centuries what needs to happen and no one has listened so maybe it's about time that we move we step back and let others uh, do, do, do the, the hard work Tadila, mm-hmm. I think we're also asking the question about racism in the Muslim community itself and we're asking the tough question because we know that we come from apartheid South Africa we may have a democracy but we still have racism even amongst people of color and I think that's also one of the questions that we're asking here, it's not just about white people who are racist towards people of color, we're also being introspective and saying well within the Muslim community there's racism and what are we going to do about it or what is being done about it well, uh, my answer applies to the equality to the Muslim community as well. We have we have leader we have we have leaders in the Muslim community, and and some of those leaders are racist. But we put them on a pedestal. We made them leaders. So perhaps it's about time that we start start at the top. We start at the top to deal with the racism at the top. For example, how many of the ulama organizations in the Muslim community are representatives of the demographics of the Muslims in South Africa? None of them are of the of the demographics of of the. So perhaps before we start by talking about uh, or pointing fingers or talking about what is it that we need to be done, we need to start at the top and say to those organizations that claim to speak on our behalf that they need to be representative of us, both uh, both in substance and in 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 content. So I don't think that uh, as as indigenous Muslims 
It's our job to teach Muslims about anti-racism. The Quran is there. It's 1,400 years old. It talks about the ills of racism. The Sunnah is there. So that, that, there's, there's a vast amount of literature that is there. But we, we've, we've gone to a situation where we've, we've, we go through this cycle almost every time that racism becomes a hot, a hot topic. We get a few people around, we ask them, what can we do to fight racism? We've said this over and over again, what needs to be done to fight racism, but no one seems to be listening. So perhaps it's about time that now we keep quiet and we let things be, or we do uh, 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 the, the, the thing that many of us don't want, but which we are forced into, that of separating ourselves from those who see us as subhuman. Okay. Fasiha, mm. would you like to add your comments now as well? Yeah, I, I actually think Tandila is onto something here about, you know, the idea that racism must always be raised um, by, by the victims of racism. And I think there's a very important discussion that needs to be had. Um, and I fully agree with, with, with you, Tandila, that it only comes up, it flares up, you know, um, when there's more topical issues. Um, and while I think we must obviously not, we don't want to prevent people from um, doing the right thing or starting a journey into activism, but we also can't be um, in a space in which we're advocating for a movement like Black Lives Matter um, and then quietly, both, both quietly and both, both very openly, um, exert racism in our own community. Um, and obviously, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a spokesperson for the Muslim community, but I am someone who has spoken out against the racism within the community. And it's not just, you see, this is the other thing that I think we need to talk about, right? A lot of people don't quite understand what we mean when we talk about structural racism, which is hugely prevalent in the Muslim community. So it's not just about the overt racism um, that one would think about, you know, the average sort of idea of what a racist incident would be. It's not just that. It's about how that system is set up. And in many ways, the Muslim community reflects that. Um, Tendile spoke about um, the ulama and how they're also not representative um, of the demographics of the country. And that's also where it begins, right? It's, it's about how these systems are set up and how they play themselves out, um, even in our homes. So someone will say to you, oh, I'm not racist. But in reality, you'll see that there's different plates that are used for their domestic workers, uh, for the people who, who work in the garden, etc., etc., different bathrooms and you know there's sort of complete separation and then that same person will say oh i'm not racist because i'm not saying racist things even though they probably think it so so i think you know part of it and this is the beginning point is having this honest discussion um and i think is you 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 you're quite clear in saying and i agree with you that this is really a starting point this is not where the discussion ends and in fact the discussion is only useful if it leads to the dismantling of structural racism within our community. And that is a very difficult process, but it's most certainly not impossible. Um, and I agree that it, it's no longer or it should never have been the onus on the victims of racism. When, when someone is in a position of power and there's an oppressed group and you are that person in, position, in the position of power, it's your job to relinquish your privilege and your job to say, well, what am I doing to perpetuate these problematic ideas? Um, so it starts there. It even starts within yourself. It starts about with how you interact with people, with your friends, your family, um, you know, even colleagues at work. Um, and it's really not something we can run away from. And we can't pretend that just posting a black picture on Instagram um, and tagging it and hashtagging it and thinking, oh, you know what, I'm an activist. That's it. You know, we have to look closer to home and we have to look within our own homes and our own selves.
Mm-hmm. Before we can even think we're going to dismantle this thing. Yeah. Let's go for a quick ad break. Um, I've got two more questions when we come back. Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldi. And of course, this evening we are looking at racism. It's something that comes up routinely in South Africa. In fact, it's like a hobby in South Africa. Every time this happens, we go crazy. We talk about it at length, but still we sit with the same issue. Of course, it's been a long time that we've had this kind of subjugation and oppression in South Africa, starting way back in the 1600s. And then, of course, we had apartheid. And only now in the last almost three decades we've had democracy now we have two guests online Fasih Hassan is an activist and Tandile Kona he's the Muslim Youth Movement President um, guests are you still with us? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Great. Look, let's just quickly acknowledge what some of our listeners are sending us on WhatsApp because it's yeah. always good to look at what people are saying as part of the conversation. Um, let's go to some of the WhatsApp messages. Listeners, Shukran, thank you so much, of course, for sending in your messages. If anybody does want to con- contribute to the show, you're welcome to do so. Our WhatsApp line is 072. 2380712. You can also give us a call in the studio. The number is 021-442-3530. So here's a message from listener triple five three. It says Salam Ra'is Muratia. When certain groups label all Muslims as terrorists or extremists, they look at us as one entity. Whether we are black, white, tall, short, they look at us as a whole. The unfortunate fact in that is that they do not do a better job at unifying us under an Islamic identity because if you look within the Muslim community you'll find how rife racism is amongst ourselves. Perhaps the Black Lives Matter movement trend right now will make us as Muslims reflect on that. Listener 4502 says Islam condemns racism. And then listener 9910 says let's put it straight, anti-racist in any form white over black over Arab, over non-Arab, so on. It's all about color majority, one over another. It's so sad. Okay, shukran for the feedback from the listeners. So, guys, here's the thing, though. A black man was also killed in South Africa during lockdown. In fact, more than one black person was killed by the South African uh, uh, forces during the lockdown. So, why is it? It seems almost hypocritical, this lack of response of South Africans against the death of black people being killed also by police, or rather not police, by by, um, security forces. You know, I mean, do black lives not matter in South Africa? I'm just curious um, to know your thoughts yes, on that. Yeah. Yes. Da, da. yes no. Look. Look at it. Uh, the, the the notion of white supremacy is very pervasive. It is so effective that it it it, it takes its victims and makes it uh, and makes the victims the primary uh, tools through which it it it, it grows or it it spreads. So it's no surprise that uh, Collins Koza was killed, but there was nothing much said about it. Because black people themselves, uh, and I use this, this this phrase black Indian colored very carefully because in my vocabulary I, I I consider Indian colored people as black people until they say they are not black. So black people themselves believe that black lives do not matter. 
you know, they may not say so very openly, but in their in in their in their actions and in their belief system, it is a, it has been ingrained in them. The inferiority complex has been in, so ingrained in them that when Collins Koza is killed, the first thing that they assume that he must have done something to provoke the soldiers. There is not a questioning of why would soldiers go into someone's yard and kill them in their yard, in their person's yard. So the white supremacy has been so effective in that, in that fashion, in that it has, allowed, it has made us instruments of its own uh, spreading, hence the silence around uh, Collins Cosa. And what made, what made uh, 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 George Floyd's uh, death, uh, gruesome death, to be so uh, uh, widely condemned is because, one, it was on camera, two, it happened in the West. So what in in our in our in our conditioning is that lives of people in the West or people in the global north, you know, are superior or matter more than lives than people in the global uh, in, in the global south. For example, look at this COVID nineteen pandemic that's happening. America has more deaths than any other country in the world. But still, you, 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 you see in the news the expectation that Africa will be the hardest hit by this because Africa has to. There's no way that Africa can survive uh, this pandemic or can manage this pandemic because Africans are, 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 are filthy people. Uh, Africans are, are, are people who are not able to manage their broken health systems. Uh, Africans are ineffective. Africans are inefficient. But the, the facts do not bear that, bear that out. The epicenter of the virus is America, but the focus from time to time shifts to the expectation that Africa will be the, the next epicenter of the virus. So George Floyd is fortunate in, in some sense. Of course, there can be no fortune, being fortunate in being killed in that manner. It's fortunate in that sense in that what happened to him happened in the West. But Collins Causa's death happened in, in, in the third world, so to speak. Okay. So essentially, the thinking then is that because we are so used to the idea that black people, I mean, even here in South Africa, that, you know, you said that now nobody questions why this man was killed, why Colin, Collins Corsa was killed. People almost like assume that he did something wrong. So the assumption is that we automatically assume here in South Africa that a black person it's almost like wrong from the outset. Mm. That's true. If, yes. If, if I could, if I could maybe just come in there as well. Yeah. Um, I think you know it's hugely a product of the mindset, right? I mean, Biko spoke around the most powerful tool of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that we continuously look at ourselves, maybe not overtly, um, but also as, as in sort of a criminal way. A lot of the narrative that's coming out from BLM in America. It's just how, and I, I don't know if anyone would have seen this, but um, that w- white woman in New York in the park, who just because she was unhappy with um, a black person sort of standing close to her, trying to speak to her, she called the cops and said that he was a threat. And no questions were asked. Um, the idea that blackness is criminality, you know, the, even the internalized element. Um, and, and I also wanted to add, you know, one of the things that we, we consistently don't acknowledge is also the imperialism element of this. So people are more akin to American culture 
um, in American current affairs than they are about what's going on in South Africa. And it matters more to them um, in that sense uh, than, than, than in some ways domestic issues. Now, obviously, this is not the case for everybody because one or, one or two of the, the people who had um, WhatsApped in had said, you know, we also can't generalize. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is that when there's an issue um, in the UK or in America, it takes precedence over our global issues, which is shocking. And, you know, I just also, as a last comment on the matter, when we take action in favor of, of, of Black Lives Matter, we need to be very cognizant of the fact that we are dealing with a crisis in South Africa. Um, so when we talk about Black Lives Mattering in Minneapolis, they must also matter as much in Alexandra in, in, or, or in Kailicha or in Guguletu as well. Um, so we can't apply one, one sort of level of consistency around that and then not send the mirror up against ourselves. Very true. Now, some more WhatsApp messages that have been coming through. Listener 1609 says, I would like to see Black Shayuk giving Khutabas at quote-unquote Malay and quote-unquote Indian Masajid. Black Muslims are more than just Mo'avins. We need to stop treating indigenous Muslims as second-class Muslims. Racism in the South African community is real, especially with the older generation. And then... Listener 5257 says, A white policeman killed a black man, sad but true, and the world is up in arms. A drug dealer kills a seven-year-old girl, destroys countless lives, and life continues without anyone blinking an eye. How many shootings today alone? And we as South Africans want to march for BLM. So... Really, not all lives matter. Okay, that is that is an opinion, and that of course I can read in there the frustration of the of the of the listener, feeling that more people need to stand up for injustices such as when a seven-year-old girl is killed, or when anyone else is being killed, and and of course we understand that. But this evening we are addressing a system, the racist system, that informs the killings and the violence against people by government forces, i.e. the police and the military. That is the topic this evening. The other socioeconomic issues that are linked to the unfortunate killing of children in our communities is a different conversation. Listen to double one double one. Yes, you can call us if you want to. Um, our number in the studio, let me just get it, is 21 Four four two three five three zero. Now I want to come to another thing that has been going around on the media, um, social media especially, uh, Tandile and Fasiha. It is around how do we respond to the debate around people who say that, um, or rather present the counter narrative to Black Lives Matter. People who say that all lives matter. Um, Fasiha, what are your thoughts around that? I'm sure it's something that you've talked about before. You know, yeah. somebody posts in response to Black Lives Matter. They say, yeah, but what about other people? All lives matter. It, it speaks almost like of, of feeling threatened or, or by something. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it, it's part of, there's a few things we need to talk about on this one, right? The first thing is the idea that prioritizing a marginalized group according to this sort of thinking, automatically means another group is necessarily under attack. No one's saying that all lives don't matter. What we're saying is that the way the system is set up 
The fact that a black person, an African-American person, cannot walk outside of their home without being attacked or being like afraid. I mean, people, African-Americans in, in, in the U.S. are terrified of the police because they can be walking down the street, they can be jogging, and they could die, right? When a white person does the same thing, it's not a death threat. It's not a death sentence. So in order for us to actually ever get to a point in which we can say that there's equality or that all lives truly matter, we need to look at oppressed and marginalized groups and do whatever we can to ensure that sort of we elevate that, that, that status so that everyone's on the same level. And also, you know, it's part of this thing of when you raise an issue, automatically there's the sense of, oh, you can't raise it because there are other issues in the world. Um, Black Lives Matter, but what about this? What about that? If we continue to have that kind of approach, we're never going to solve racism and we're never going to also understand, and this is the second big point, that all struggles are linked. That while we are fighting racism, we are also acknowledging that black women in particular are even more marginalized because of patriarchy, because of misogyny. Um, if we look at, um, you know, the sort of layers of oppression, even classism, everything is linked. So to, to sort of try and go and say, well, all lives matter, I think it really misses the point. Um, and it misses the, the violence of the system against black lives and black bodies because it's not possible to say that the system in which we live in is safe for them. And until it's safe, until we, until we can say that everybody has equal opportunity and everybody's lives truly matter, then only can we really make that argument. Um, so for me, it's a reductionist thing. And it's not saying, you know, some people mean well. They mean well by saying, okay, everyone's lives matter. But that detracts from the greater point here of what we're trying to fix and what we're trying to address. Mm -hmm. And also acknowledging that there's a real threat that black people face by saying that all lives matter. It's kind of like saying, well, let's talk about all the other things without really acknowledging the fact that black people, you know, whether it's in America or in other places, face a threat against their lives. Tandile, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. No, uh, I laugh. I laugh at the all lives matter refrain because in the Muslim community, we, it, it's it's a silence and tool. And in the Muslim community, we have an equivalent uh, of it. Uh, when you raise issues of racism, immediately the story of Bilal comes up. It's a sort of a get out of jail card for 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 Muslims who don't want to confront confront issues of racism in the Muslim community. You know, it's like saying that no, but. You know, even the refrain that Islam condemns uh, uh, racism or, or there's no racism in Islam. Of course, we are clear there's no racism in Islam. But Muslims are racist. You know, we're talking about the behavior of Muslims. We're not talking about uh, uh, what, they, what, what Islam says. We know what Islam says. So we have an equivalent to that. It's a silencing tool uh, by people who do not want to, to have these, these uh, uncomfortable conversations. Uh, so I, I, I simply I simply ignore people who would uh, respond by all lives matter or who pull out uh, the Bilal story uh, get out of free card get out of jail free card. <laughs> oh my God, that's I like the way you I say like that, that. That get out of. <laughs> yeah, you're saying uh, Fasiha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree with Tandil. I think it's very true. It's almost as if that that sentence alone is meant to solve the problem without acknowledging that we have a, in fact, we have a crisis in the Muslim community and that goes across whether it's the Indian or, or the Malay Muslim community in which we don't take seriously enough um, the fact that it's not enough to just say 
Islam doesn't promote racism, we have to actively be anti-racist and we have to actively do everything that we can to dismantle it. Otherwise, we're just as guilty as being complacent and being quiet. Yeah. You know, I just want to add that I definitely have experienced even sort of uh, discrimination, if you like, even from people of color, you know. I, I just want to say that I've, and so it hasn't just been like experiencing the sense of racism from, let's say, a white person towards me, but I've, I honestly just want to share this one experience. So I'm a journalist, right? So I went into this organization once and I went to go interview somebody there, right? And then I sat in the reception and then there were two colored women there and the one was the receptionist and then the other one comes in from, from somewhere like, another office or whatever and she comes in and I heard them and I could see them and the one woman the one woman who came in she's like oh is he here looking for a job like I felt that was making a big assumption about me and then Kanti meanwhile it was like the CEO of the company comes out and he greets me with a smile and he asks me if I want coffee because I'm coming to interview him and he's like a white guy and the, the receptionist just looks at me like that and I was like yeah I didn't even I didn't want to say anything because it's almost like an assumption that people of color have that if you are a colored or if you're a black person that you on that level of like looking for a job and I've experienced and it so much it. even when I go into shops man like people of color they look at you almost like you don't have money sometimes I'm like dude Sure. Yeah, like I'm a customer, it, it, it treat me like anybody else. It's internalized racism that's obviously coming from a hangover of apartheid in South Africa. So I just, I'm, I'm just bringing this up because I feel almost like it's, it's so much more complex than just a system of like a white person mm. who will look at you in a way of like, oh, you're just the colored. You know, it happens in so many other ways as well. Exactly, yes. and, I, and I think that's what people don't look at, right? They don't realize that the comments that people make or even, you know, something that really irks me and it happens a lot in the Indian community in particular is the usage of words um, in Gujarati and Urdu, etc., which mean black but are very derogatory and are meant to be very derogatory. But when you call it out, they're like, no, but it means black, so it's the same. When in reality, we know that it's actually also a way of othering and it's also a way of discriminating in a space in which people can't necessarily even defend themselves because they don't understand the same language. So for me, that's also something that, in fact, it's gotten to a point where my family members know not to say those things in front of me, but they're not any less racist. So one of the things I've been trying to reflect on, particularly over the last few weeks, is yes, they know it's not okay to say, but they're just not saying it in front of me or in front of other progressive people. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we get to a point in which we actually change people within the community, because I don't think we can wait long. Yes, we, we need education. We can change it through the schooling system to some extent. But can we wait that long? I mean, surely there's something that we can do, some sort of intervention to start changing or having more honest discussions now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Guys, I think we need to go for another quick commercial break. Um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with your, let me just look at the time, what's happening in terms of the program schedule. Um, I think we need to let's okay let's wrap up rather um closing remarks from our two guests because we'll have other guests after the break Fasiha, any closing remarks from your side and particularly i want us to close off on a high note like progressive movements 
send out good vibes tell us where are we going with this you know because there's a very heavy feeling around racism but we know that in South Africa we've overcome apartheid and of course we're still dealing with racism but surely it's not all doom and gloom or is it I don't know I think that we have to believe that we can dismantle the system because we have to right there's no way that black people in this country and all over the world can continue to live under such subjugation. Um, but what I, what I do think could be useful is that we're not just at a time in which we are witnessing BLM protests across the world. We're at a time in which COVID-19 has exposed the fault lines and the, the, the flaws of the system. Now, more than ever, people are starting to realize, um, you know, all the, the truth people were told in the past, right? You have to get a job in this particular way. Um, you have to do things in this, in, this, in this sort of manner. Don't hold anymore. And COVID-19 presents us with a unique opportunity to say, well, we are going to rebuild the economic system. We're going to rebuild the education system. We're going to rebuild whichever other systems in a way that doesn't promote elitism, in a way that doesn't promote, you know, sort of classism or even, and this is the important one, racism. It's an opportunity for us to, it's not exactly a factory reset. I don't think we're going to ever get to that stage, but it is an opportunity for us to develop mass change and to create mass community-based change. Um, so if I look at it from that perspective and I look at the time in which we are now, as much as it's very depressing and it's very difficult, perhaps this is the thing that we needed to change the status quo. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And Tandile, your closing remarks, please. Yes, uh, yeah, right. I think I think we should count ourselves as fortunate uh, in South Africa. In fact, all over the world, that black people do not want uh, revenge; they just want equality and justice. You know, um, and, uh, and and my my parting words is that I I, I keep ho- I hold I hold on to hope. I have hope that uh, uh, in as much as I have I have decided to step back. But I have hope that we will overcome. And I know that uh, lots of, there are lots of good people in the Muslim community who give me hope from all, from all sides, from all, all, all racial groups within the Muslim community. So I'm holding on to hope, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. The work begins in the home. The work begins by calling out racists, be they our family, be they our, uh, our, 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 our friends. We need to call them out. It's not me saying so. It's an instruction from Allah. And if we are Muslim, if we are the Muslims that we claim that we are, then we need to speak out against injustice, even against ourselves. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Shukran there to our guests. Uh, and of course, we'll continue with the show just after the break. The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. In tonight's show, we are asking ourselves introspectively, we are looking at the Muslim community and saying, what do we need to do to confront anti-black racism in the Muslim community? We've talked before the break to two guests and they've shared their views on, you know, a a number of things. Of course, if you have Al Jazeera International, the English uh, version of it, you are um, able to watch now the live a broadcast of a funeral service of George Floyd, the American man that was killed by a, a white police officer. Now, a number of WhatsApp messages have come through. Um, I'm just going to quickly acknowledge that. 
Um, let's go through the messages. Excuse me. Listener 4506 says, Racism is found in all countries and also non-whites can be racist. But we look in one direction when white farmers are murdered, fueled by hate. Like black economic empowerment benefits only blacks, our system is flawed. And then listener 1465 says, The topic is very important and racism in the Muslim community is happening. Some ulama use black Muslim converts to make money and treat them like they are doing them a favor. Black Muslims need to stand on their own and do it for themselves. Then listener 3674 says, George Floyd is one of what has happened and is still happening in the USA but if you go back in history it shows that it's corporates that fund this training with terrorists to get their corporate power protective, protected all lives matter listener 4385 says it's sad the killing of Floyd I think we should erase the word racism out of our vocabulary I traveled from Fulani in a taxi and I'm so tired of hearing the word racist Ask to open the window, you racist. Ask to move up, you racist. So we should delete that word from our hearts, inshallah. Now I'm going to welcome our next guest to the show. It's Sheikh Bilal Ismail. Uh, Sheikh Bilal, are you online? Yes. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam. And you are the founder of the Imam Development Project in South Africa, I believe. Uh, South Africa, Malawi, and Lesotho, yes. Okay. For our listeners who don't know about the Imam Development Project, can you give us a brief description about it and what you do? Okay, no problem in one minute, inshallah. So the Imam Development Program, Imam Development Program is a top-up package uh, offer that we offer ulama out there, imams out there, muallimas, muallims, etc. Those who, for whatever reason, going through financial difficulties, they have issues, they have problems, they don't have medical aid, they don't have a laptop, we want them to communicate and we want them to connect with the youth, they don't know what is Facebook, etc. because he says, I don't have a smartphone and I worry about Salatul Wuhr, but I'm standing there at the clinic with my daughter who's very ill. Three days now, she hasn't been to a doctor because she's so ill. I don't have the money to take her to the doctor. The usual issues that uh, Maulanas, Imams, etc. unfortunately have to go through. So the Imam Development Program tries to provide a bandage solution. It's an immediate solution. It's not the long-term solution where we offer these Imams a $5,000 package which includes a cash component of 2,000 rands in their bank account every month and kind component, which covers laptop, internet, computer, smartphone, clothing courses. Third weekend of every month is continuous professional development, etc. And so, alhamdulillah, there's over 100 imams in South Africa, Lesotho, and in Malawi okay, okay, who are currently thanks. on the program. Okay, we got it. So now I also want to welcome, we've got a second guest for this part of the show. It is uh, Sheikh Fakhruddin Awaisi. Um, Sheikh Fakhruddin, good evening and welcome to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shukran for having me on your respected show. You are described as a scholar in my production sheet. Is that a correct description? Uh, I consider myself a student of knowledge. But thanks for the compliment. <laughs> okay, look, we've got a difficult topic at hand, right? And we are looking at how do Muslims confront anti-black racism within our community and, of course, racism in general. Let's start with Sheikh Fakhruddin. So, through what lens have you been looking at the issue of racism? Um, 
You know, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I, I just want to say, I mean, reflecting on the earlier discussions, that a lot of Muslims uh, have this wrong understanding of what BLM, Black Lives Matter, means. Uh, and I want to clarify that Bla- Black Lives Matter uh, doesn't mean only Black Lives Matter. That's not the meaning of Black Lives Matter, that only Black Lives Matter. What it means is Black Lives also matter. Black Lives also matter. Because at the moment, Black Lives are literally the cheapest in the world. You know, unfortunately, you know, Africa uh, is the continent that is the most raped by all the other powers in this world. Uh, African people, black people, uh, are the ones that are uh, the most oppressed and most uh, mistreated, not only in America, I mean, uh, you know, where the police brutality against them continues, uh, but in other parts of the world, even in Africa itself, where you have certain African governments themselves, the way they treat their own citizens, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pathetic. So, therefore, I mean, to uh, every time we talk about the suffering of black people, to come to that and say all lives matter, uh, it's really like, I mean, marching for the death of a Palestinian kid in Gaza, and then somebody comes and says all kids matter. Why are you talking about the Palestinians only? Or uh, you say, uh, let's save the whales, and somebody comes and says all fish matter. You know, that's just a deflection from the issue at hand. We have an issue at hand, which is the suffering of, uh, black people and the racism that they face, we shouldn't turn away from that real discussion and try to uh, generalize the whole thing or, or you know, uh, hide away from that discussion or pretend that it doesn't exist. Okay, so I get your main point. Your main point is the movement is saying that black lives matter too. It's not saying that black lives matter above other people's lives. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so we got that point. So... Uh, Sheikh Bilal, I want to come to you now because this is an important thing. When you are developing leadership, you, of course, want leaders to set the example, you know. So how does the IDP as an organization challenge racist stereotypes and fight for the rights of black imams in the broader Muslim community? Because we're also talking about racism and racist attitudes at a leadership level here in our community. Mm, Excellent. Jazakumullah khairan. So... The Imam Development Program, obviously, we do not uh, discriminate with regards to any applicant as long as they are in South Africa and the person is a South African or a legal resident, inshallah, then it's open to all. And alhamdulillah, the IDP has facilitated for Imams of different backgrounds to get together and interact with one another. It's really easy to talk about the other when you don't see them, when they are far away, when they are on the other side of the wall. But when you have to sit and talk to that black brother, you might uh, have seen him, it's from the township and stuff like that. But when you sit together and you discuss together and you have a three-day retreat together and you're all living together and you're eating together, mashallah, this goes a long way in building bridges between them alhamdulillah and so on one hand the matter of race one tries to break down those barriers and stuff like that and yes obviously the maulana the sheikh etc they've studied at jami'at they've studied at darul ulooms and in many of these darul ulooms etc you had a mix of people from different races and different groupings and stuff like that and some of them come out with maybe even horror stories 
that they've studied in maybe the 90s. And when they were there, they might have been a predominantly Indian, um, higher rate of maybe Indians in the Dar ulum at that time, maybe some teachers, they experienced some of this discriminatory practices. And so hopefully with them interacting with people, other imams, different races, different groupings, uh, this uh, definitely brings down uh, those barriers between them, alhamdulillah. That's just one way, inshallah. If you don't speak to the other, you don't talk to the other, then it's very, very easy for you to build barriers between yourself and the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to come to back to Sheikh Uwaisi. Um, I think what's important for us to understand is whether or not as a Muslim community we are you know, confronting it enough. I mean, do you think that we are confronting anti-black racism in the Muslim community, Sheikh Fahreddin? We are confronting it, but I don't think it's enough. Uh, I think we are still way behind in confronting it. The problem is uh, denialism where people just say stuff like there is no racism in Islam. Uh, They bring the Bilal card, you know, and uh, and, uh, they, they act like it isn't there. Or uh, we, we, we don't really offer solutions. We, we may say, yes, racism is bad, uh, but the subtle racism that continues, uh, it's still there. Unfortunately, I mean, in the Muslim community, uh, we still have, uh, you know, people make comments, uh, racist comments. It's often, you know, oh, the blacks don't know how to rule a country. Uh, you know, oh, the blacks don't know how to drive. Oh, the blacks this, the blacks that. Uh, which are usually illogical statements. Uh, they're not really statistically, and there's no ration behind it, uh, you know. Uh, but it's just racism, uh, which is re, uh, you know, uh, produced, uh, presented, you know, in, in, a, in a different manner. Uh, you, you still find people using uh, racist terminology when referring to black people, you know, uh, K-words and, and I mean, at the D-word, you know, people don't talk about the D-word because apparently that's not racist, but it is actually racist, you know. And uh, these terms are still used. And what really scares me, uh, Brother Kamaldin, is that uh, I'm even seeing some of the younger generation continue to use these terms. I understand the older people who grew up under apartheid and uh, they became used to using these terms. I don't justify it, but uh, I understand. You know, it's, it's, you know, it takes you can't change the habits of the old dog, as they say. Uh, but uh, when I see younger people also using these same terms and talking in these same type of uh, discourse of racism, and uh, it, it scares me. Uh, we need to follow Islam, not our cultural biases. In Islam, we judge every human being according to their own merit. There is no place for stereotypes in Islam. So it is wrong for a Muslim, if you see a black person, you immediately assume he's, uh, uh, he's, he's looking for money. Or if you see a white person, you immediately assume he's a racist. Uh, you see a colored person, you immediately assume, like you, you mentioned, you know, oh, he's looking for a job. Uh, there's no place for stereotypes in Islam. Uh, we need to treat every, give every human being their God-given dignity. Uh, and it's up to them to prove themselves good or bad. I mean, uh, and it's not about their race. Uh, there are good white people and bad white people. There are good black people, good, you know, bad black people. There are good colors. Good. So uh, this thing of generalizing about certain races and stereotyping them, this has to go. And the imams need to speak more than that, uh, more about it. Uh, too many masjids have, you know, black muazzins, uh, but not a black imam. 
too many organizations have black cleaners, but they don't have black people at the helm of affairs. And it's not, and, I, and you cannot say now in 2020 the excuse of, oh, we don't have enough black ulama or black maulanas. No, there are many, many black ulama and imams and maulanas. And I speak to many of them often, and they'll tell you how they cannot go up the ladder. They are not allowed up the ladder. Uh, there have been black brothers in certain... I'm, I'm, okay, I'm not going to mention any organizations, but who, who belong to certain groups and movements, and they'll be like, I'm in this movement for 20 years, and I'm still not appointed as an amir or a chairman or anything. But the guy that came in two, two years ago or last year, who's like 20 years younger than me, he's already up the ladder above me. Mm-hmm. So we need to have fundamental changes uh, in, in these uh, things. Okay. Now, uh, Sheikh Bilal, um, you are still with us, right? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. So, I mean, let's go now because people often in, you know, this conversation when they say Islam does not have any place for racism, they obviously go to the story of Bilal, as Sheikh Fakhruddin Oasi has said, you know, and that refers to um, the, the, the black Mu'adin, right? But so let us look at the Prophet Wasallam's life, you know, and how he viewed racism and oppression. What are the key lessons we draw from the Prophet on how we should respond to racism and oppression? Khair, uh, inshallah. But just before that, a point that I don't think, uh, unless there's some strange group of uh, Muslims out there, I think everybody agrees that Islam is totally against racism, and that average Muslim out there who might have these tendencies, he himself says, no, no, I'm, I'm not a racist. Uh, I'm a good guy, etc. It's just, you know, this, that, etc. And he makes excuses. I think it's uh, really rare to find somebody who would uh, justify his practice. Might be embarrassed, etc. I do it. I was brought up like this, etc. My father, my grandfather, don't blame me and stuff like this. But I don't think anyone justifies. I think everybody agrees in theory, we have absolutely no problem, and we are we're supposed to be leading others, as Malcolm X has stated, that this is the solution. Islam is the solution for the American, for the African Americans in America, and uh, and for everybody else. But our problem is on the practical level. Practical level, there we fall short. Subhanallah. Iblis was the first racist, and a khayrun min am better than him. Our Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Subhanallah, in the early years of Makkah, he was given an offer that get rid of this Bilal and Suhaib and Ammar and all of these young ones and all of these lowly ones and these black ones, etc. Get rid of them, and then Mughira ibn Mughira and Walid ibn Mughira and the other guys, the high-ranking individuals, the Mala, they will come and sit in your gatherings. They will become Muslim. But they don't want to become Muslim when you have all of these riffraffs, when you have all of these lowly ones with you. One might have thought, I mean, at the end of the day, let's be pragmatic about the matter. Maybe for a few days and then Islam will set into their hearts and we can all come together. But subhanAllah, Allah mentioned in the Noble Quran that do not kick away these people, the ones who turn to Allah and the ones who seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's face, trying to get and trying to uh, curry favor with these other individuals. Allah understand. Whereas subhanAllah, we find later on in the seerah when the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the people of Ta'if had come and uh, they had certain conditions. We want to become Muslim, but zakah, we're not too happy about zakah and jihad and all of these matters. Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was ready to accept these type of conditions. But when it came to the matter of racism in early Islam, absolutely not. There's absolutely no place for that. Alhamdulillah. And, and uh, Sheikh Fakri mentions with regards to the Mu'addin and Bilal, I mean, a brother mentioned to me that he was in one of the towns and he was the musafir and it was time for salah 
And because he's an African, he's black, uh, so they said to him, give the adhan. So he said to the uncle, I mean, I'm just Musafir, I, I, I don't know where, what, who's in charge, whatever. He says, no, but you need to give the adhan. So he's like, oh, what do you mean, I, I need to give the adhan? Uh, he's not being explicit, but basically because I'm black, I'm African, then technically I'm supposed to be giving the adhan because of Bilal radiallahu ta'ala'an, Allahumma So, ala kulli hal, there's absolutely no issue in terms of theory. Everybody understands that, everybody knows that. We fall short when it comes to the matter of practice. The old generation, yes, as Sheikh Fakhri mentioned, they can give the excuse, not justified, but apartheid and all of this. But what about the rest of us? What about the millennials? What about those who are 30 and 40 years old, etc.? Allahumma time uh, and, and like was mentioned ulama bodies maybe in cape town yes it's much more colorful alhamdulillah whereas in the north etc our side KZN, a lot still needs to be done a lot still needs to be done with regards to this matter that it needs to be a bit more colorful some might feel well you know if we have these others as they are called the others if they come into the fold and they come into the organization they're going to change the whole trajectory of matters and what our forefathers had uh, set up as our tariqah and our methodology and our mizaj all of that's going to change we say brother you rather get with the change because it is coming whether you like it or not you're either with the program or it's going to happen mm-hmm. i guess what's important to run, to recognize and to understand that this isn't so much about saying like we're not just saying we need faces of black people that that is not what we're saying we're saying we need to internalize the racism and really address it because this isn't just like a token thing where oh we're not seeing black people this is really asking a question of the muslim community and saying what is it that you are doing that prohibits or inhibits black people from participating fully in the muslim community whether it's in leadership, whether it's in coming to the masjid, or whether it's in feeling welcome within our community, I think that's really what this is. What what what, what is important for me to bring out in this conversation? If one has to be blatantly clear, ask that masjid where they have the imam who's an African, and they also have an imam who is an Indian. What is the salary difference between both of them? And both of them have a shahada from a South African Darul Ulum. If, for example, the salary is not much in terms of difference, alhamdulillah, khair and ni'mah. But the reality is, in most cases, it's a vast difference between the two, subhanAllah. Similarly, with regards to the mu'azdin, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also want to add that, you know, people uh, have this misconception about Sayyidina Bilal that uh, he was, uh, you know, just the muazzin. He was also the treasurer of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He was the treasurer of the Muslim, the Islamic State of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Khakana khazanun Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So uh, limiting it to just being a muazzin is not true. And secondly, in the time of Sayyidina Umar, when, when many countries were conquered, Sayyidina Bilal was appointed as the governor of Jerusalem, uh, and later on in Damascus as well. So this thing of limiting the black Muslim to a Bilal, uh, it's really uh, an insult to Sayyidina Bilal radiallahu an. Uh, Abu Bakr, uh, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an used to refer to Bilal as uh, Sayyiduna wa ibnu uh, wa Sayyiduna. He used to say, Bilal is our master. When somebody referred to him as a slave, he said, no, this is our master. And he was freed by our master, which is Abu Bakr radiallahu an. So uh, even Bilal is really looked at. As not just as this Muazzin figure, 
but he was much more than that. The Prophet ﷺ, when he conquered Makkah, he told Sayyidina Bilal to go on top of the Kaaba. And I always, when I explain the story in the Sira lessons I teach, I tell them to the students, you know why he did that? Uh, I said because Bilal was told to go up the Kaaba after the Prophet ﷺ demolished all the idols around the Kaaba. So I said he told Bilal to go on top of the Kaaba to destroy the inward idol of racism, which was still in the hearts of all those people in Makkah. So first, all the outward idols were demolished, but there was still the inward idol of superiority. And when Bilal radiallahu went top of the Kaaba, the people in Makkah, the chiefs of Makkah, the Abu Sufyans and the Utba, you know, these, these, the leaders of Quraysh, they actually said, we should have rather died than witness Muhammad put his black crow on top of our Kaaba. These were their words. That we should we should have be better off dead than witnessing Muhammad put his black crow on top of the Kaaba. And when the Prophet ﷺ heard that, he looked at them and said, "Today Allah has destroyed your racism and your arrogance." Uh, and uh, so, therefore, that was another idol that was destroyed. So, Islam is about the oneness, not only about the oneness of God. As Sheikh Bilal was mentioning earlier, when they wanted to make a compromise, Islam is not only about the one, the oneness of God; it is also about the oneness of man. So if you have an Islam which is only about the oneness of God, but it doesn't include the oneness of man, then that's not Islam. That's not the religion of Muhammad wasallam. That is something else. So we need to go back to our faith. I believe racism is defeatable, uh, Brother Yazid. Racism is defeatable, but we really need to go back to the Quran and the Sunnah. And if we really understand them properly, we will defeat this scourge of racism and it will, uh, this disease will eventually leave our hearts, inshallah. Mm-hmm. Now, let's briefly wrap up. We need some closing remarks. My last question before we go for an ad break to both our guests is, how do we encourage social cohesion within the Muslim community? We know now that there is racism. We've known it for a while. It's something that has been part of our society in South Africa, legally under a system called apartheid. Now, but how do we encourage in the Muslim community, especially social cohesion? Uh, you, you know, so um, I'll answer first, then Sheikh Bilal can, can go after that. Um, uh, yes, we, we need to interact more with people of other races uh, and other countries. Xenophobia is a problem. And uh, I, I, there's a quote by the, the, the great uh, British Muslim scholar, white Muslim scholar again, Dr. Abdul Hakim Murad. He, he said something very beautiful. He said it a few years ago and it stuck with me. He said, pray in the mosque of another ethnicity or nationality. It's a small quote, but what he meant was, uh, especially if you go to Britain, you see that. You get the Indian mosque, the Pakistani mosque, the Somali mosque, the Nigerian mosque, the Palestinian mosque, the Turkish mosque, the Moroccan mosque, uh, the black mosque, the whatever mosque. Uh, and these are like different communities of people who made their masjids. And But what happens is, there's nothing wrong in any community starting a masjid. But then that masjid becomes exclusively only for the people of that group, the Bengalis, the Somalis, the Indians. Even among the Indians, the Gujaratis have their own mosque and the, the Kokanis have their own. Now, what happens then uh, is that people, other Muslims of other ethnicities, are kind of like not welcoming these masjids. When you walk into that masjid, you feel unwelcome. People give you ugly looks. People want to know, what are you doing here? So he wrote that pray in the mosque of another community. Why? He said, what he meant was that if we start mixing with each other, going to each other's masjids, that would first of all break the, the barriers. I was in a country and we were going to a masjid and my host went past the masjid 
to take me to Maghrib to another masjid. So I said, I see a masjid on the way. Why can't we pray in this masjid? He said, oh, that's the Somali mosque. So apparently that answer was supposed to satisfy me. And it didn't satisfy me. And I was like, and so? So he said, yeah, well, we're going to our Indian, whatever, you know, we used to going to the other masjid. I said, so, so I asked this man, have you never, ever been to that Somali mosque? And he said, no. I said, do you always pass it? He said, yeah, but, you know, we Indians, we go to the Indian mosque and whatever. I said, I don't have a problem if you go to the mosque where you're more comfortable, whatever. But it shocks me that you've never, ever been to these brothers. So how are we going to have social cohesion if we don't even mix with Muslims of other communities? We don't go to their areas. We don't invite them to our areas. So we need to mix more. We need to interact more. We need to have honest discussions. The black Muslims should not only be considered uh, a zakat recipient, uh, and the black mosque shouldn't only be where you go dump your zakat and your soup kitchens in Ramadan and you go feed all these hungry people, take a few pictures, uh, and, and, and that's it. We need to uh, treat them as equals, as Islam teaches us. Uh, and like I'm, I'm going to conclude with an example uh, that uh, often many uh, our South African Muslim community is well known for inviting great ulama from around the world. You know, there's not a month in which, a week in which some famous guy from around the world is not visiting our country. Um, male or female. But whenever I look at the venues where these great ulama are hosted, uh, you never see a black mosque, uh, meaning a mosque in, in a black area. It's always the same rich and famous, you know, masajid that hosts them. And I don't have a problem if, if people who invite them host them. But we talk about cohesion. Why don't we have a program in a mosque in Soweto, in a mosque in Kailicha? in a mosque, in, 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 you know, uh, in, in, in the disadvantaged areas. Why don't we also make sure, make a pledge now that whenever we invite a great scholar to our country from now onwards, we will make sure there's a pro- that one of those massages are also part of the program. Mm-hmm. So this is one step forward, I think. But uh, there's much more to say, but I, my time is over. So shukran, assalamu alaikum wa alaikum And Sheikh Bilal, your remarks on how do we encourage social cohesion in the Muslim community, and then we'll wrap it up. Khair, inshallah. Just a few words, inshallah. So mix with people, mix with people, talk to people, understand people build bridges with people, learn about, I mean, subhanAllah, if anybody should be the furthest away from being a racist, should be us, us, us South Africans who lived through all of this discrimination. SubhanAllah, I mean, uh, the oppression of apartheid, the discrimination, how it destroyed generations, how it broke up so many families, etc. And, and we, as South African Muslims, MashaAllah, you know, we always like to talk about, MashaAllah, it was uh, this imam and that imam and this person and that person, they were our heroes and they stood up and they were anti-apartheid activists, MashaAllah. SubhanAllah, what about ourselves then? We want to hold them up as heroes, but where are we following in those heroes' footsteps and stuff like that, Jayid. Uh, what about uh, our domestic worker? You have a domestic worker working in your home. Charity begins at home. Respect starts at home. If your kid is calling and saying to uh, patients or uh, whatever her name might be, uh, addressing her by her first name, I mean, your kid is five years old. Addressing somebody who's at the age of 50, this is a grandmother, and addressing her by her first name, what's going to happen later on, Allah Muhammad? And so we begin at home, your domestic worker, how much is she getting paid? Is it the fifth and the sixth of the month and they still haven't been paid as yet? They have people to pay, they have bills to pay, they have school fees to sort out and stuff like this. What about your employees? 
What about the discrimination at the workplace? And so we have a long way to go, inshallah. In theory, we have it all sorted out, alhamdulillah. It's the practical matters that we are falling short, and racism is a disease of the heart at the end of the day, and we need to work on it, inshallah. Mm-hmm. With that, we'll conclude with our Shaykh. Uh, Shukran so much for your contribution. When we come back after the break, we chat to a black Muslim woman living in America right now. The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. So in this part of the show, I want to welcome Tahira Dean, a lawyer and creative writer based in San Francisco in the United States. And just a reminder, if you are watching Al Jazeera Live, which is the English version, you can catch George Floyd's family and friends at a funeral service for him in Houston. And that's, of course, been one of the topics this evening. In fact, it's been the, um, if I can say, the catalyst for our conversation about Muslims confronting anti-black racism in our own community because we need to be introspective as well. Now, Tahira Dean has written an article about her experiences of racism in the Muslim community as a black American Muslim. Tahira, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Burning Issue. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> it's great. Look, I've read your, your article and it, it was so um, enlightening for me because, frankly speaking, for myself, born in a Muslim community where everybody pretty much looks like me and speaks like me and we have the same heritage because of where we came from um, in, 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 in like three and almost 400 years ago to South Africa when Islam was established here, we've never really had conversations or never really had to confront racism against us, you know, within the Muslim community, if I can use, if I can be so frank about that. Um, but of course, mm-hmm. as a black American Muslim, you've had a very different experience. And I mean, you've written American Muslims can be reluctant to get involved in politics or anything even resembling politics. And I must say that hit a, a note with us here as well, because Muslims sometimes prefer to take a backseat when it comes to politics. Now, Tyra, mm-hmm. I've got a number of questions that I want to ask you. The first obvious question is about George Floyd. What are your key thoughts on the response to the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter protests? Yeah, um, I think that this was uh, just, you know, another example of police brutality. Um, It's not the first time that we've seen um, an unarmed black man, um, you know, face incredible violence, um, unwarranted violence uh, by the police. Um, uh, We've seen like Breonna Taylor as another another person, uh, Trayvon Martin instance, um, Ahmaud Arbery. These are, you know, George Floyd is just one case out of several, several um, instances of abuse that we've, we've witnessed um, uh, and but you know this one was so significant because it was on film um, and now that you know all Americans are pretty much still you know more or less locked in their homes uh, afraid of COVID the issue really came hard because everyone is paying attention right now um, and so you know when when justice wasn't immediately served when those officers weren't immediately charged for uh, the killing
killing um, and the, the murder of George Floyd, that's when uh, Black Lives Matter came up and everyone came to support that cause to make sure that they were charged and, uh, you know, and eventually, inshallah, we'll see a, a conviction and, and see them set a service sentence um, because, you know, we're so used to just, you know, we're, we're so used to seeing it hit in the news and then nothing come about, no justice being served. Um, and I think this time, you know, everyone is really has the time to pay attention and, and are focused on this. And, and, and we're not going to stop until um, we see it actually change come about from this. Um, and I, I think that there, you know, inshallah, there is going to be change from this. Um, we're seeing a lot of reform, um, the talk of reform of police um, in general um, taking place now, uh, especially people are talking about defunding police entirely, reallocating the funds elsewhere. Um, so I, I think that's really positive change that has come from something that is, you know, a, a terrible, terrible event um, from, you know, the, the killing of this poor man. Mm-hmm. And then what is the Muslim response, the American Muslim response to this? Um, it would be good to know what, what, what what's happening in your Muslim community. Yeah, um, so I, I have seen a lot of positive um, reaction in terms of people actually speaking up about, you know, calling this a murder, um, you know, by the police, um, people uh, standing up and putting out, um, you know, more webinars um, and classes around, uh, it, you know, how Islam views social justice. Um, so a, a lot of the big shayuk and, um, and scholars that have been leading us during Ramadan um, and these, you know, massive, uh, like, Facebook Live classes and whatnot, um, now they're using their same platforms to be able to talk about uh, the issue of, of oppression uh, within the Muslim community, but but also, you know, within America in general. Um, and it, it appears that, you know, people are, are becoming more conscious of, of the problem of racism in general. Um, there there have been some, um, you know, some, some of the younger generation, um, they have noticed that the some smaller misadjid are putting out statements that, sound kind of like all lives matter about like let's protect all the people and not really pointing out the fact that there that this was an incident of um you know police brutality and something that we've seen again and again so they're, they're putting out fluffy statements and and those are the kind of things that we're used to seeing in the past that we don't want to see again we, we want um our our scholars our leaders to uh, in our institutions here to address issues you know fr- you know completely and not dance around them um one of the reasons why they, they have said that they're very cautious about uh, condemning the violence is because the Muslim communities have worked really hard to build good relationships with police, um, especially in a post 9-11 world where, you know, we, we've been um, infiltrated by the FBI, over-surveilled. Um, and so they worked hard with those relationships, but, you know, and they don't want to disrupt the peace. So th- that's understandable, but in this time, when we've seen again and again, you know these, um, you know unwarranted uh, instances of, of force um, against black communities, it's time once and for all to to just um, speak out, you know, the truth as to what this is. It's you know unwarranted killing, unwarranted violence, um, and it's it's really important that our you know everyone in our community is on board with demonstrating you know that we are against the violence once and for all. Mm-hmm. So it seems almost like they're playing it safe. They don't want to rock the boat too much because of the discrimination that Muslims have faced in America for a number of years now. Yeah, yeah, it looks like that. That's mm-hmm. what that, what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the 
racism you may have experienced from within the American Muslim society. Um, of course, it's something that not many of our listeners would be aware of. Can you maybe share some of that with us? You've outlined it a number of issues you know that you've come across in your article but of course now for the radio show we'd also like to unpack some of that yeah of course um so within the u.s um because it's such a multicultural um, landscape in general uh, within the muslim community it's very diverse we have uh, our, our two predominant uh, groups are south asian um, and middle eastern north african um uh, ethnic groups, those are the two primary groups. And then we also have lots of, you know, Sudanese Americans, Somali Americans. Um, it's very diverse, but uh, all of that diversity has led to a, a bit of fracturing because, um, you know, people aren't able to come together and address, um, you know, f- form coalitions um, equally. And so people feel that they want to take their money and create their own masjid um, separate. You know, so you have the Somali masjid, you have the Pakistani masjid, you have the Egyptian masjid. Everyone's pretty separate. But in the instances when, when they have come together, like some of the mosques that I've been to, um, we, we have, like, I've noticed that, um, you know, people that are, are African or black black Muslims, they usually feel sidelined. They're usually not the ones that are invited to join the boards, um, which, you know, hold all the power um, and make a lot of the decisions about, you know, who comes to speak, what programs get funded, whatnot. Um, so they're left out of leadership roles. Um, and then, you know, when I witnessed in, in Boston, there's, you know, a couple of smaller uh, black a mosque, a black majority mosque, and they are underfunded. Um, you know, they there's not as much community participation. And the when when I talked to those Muslims, there they just felt that they they wanted another space to to feel included. Um, and when when they have that community of of just you know um, African American Muslims coming together, you know sharing meals together for, for iftar during Ramadan, it, they feel the more of a community. Whereas if they're in a mosque with you know South Asians um, and, and, and Arabs, everyone mixes. It's kind of like everyone is sticking to their own group, even within that. Big bigger um, mosque. Uh, so that that's what I've noticed. Like when I was growing up, it was kind of harder for my family to like have family friends um, because, you know, we didn't, we, we only spoke, you know, English. Um, and it was like, you know, our own traditions were kind of a mix of different different groups um but i noticed that you know other people were you know were able to to form uh lifelong friendships based on their families having this cultural uh, connection um so that was one thing and then now as an also as an adult and and looking into you know the different marriage prospects and seeing the races of there is really really big um people in the u.s they, they are looking uh, seeking like fair skin spouses or their parents only want them to marry within their own ethnic group so that's like a huge, huge problem that we have over and over again, and one that I, I try to write about more often um, than not. Um, but yeah, seeing the, the fracturing of our community um, and then the, the problems, um, you know, come up in different things like, you know, relationships, that, that's a big issue for me. Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick ad break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Tyra. The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. The Burning Issue 
Welcome back to The Burning Issue with myself, Yazid Kamaldin. Online, we have Tahira Dean. She's a San Francisco-based lawyer and writer. She's an African-American and Black American Muslim. And she's talking about her experience as a Muslim and racism in the Muslim community where she lives. Now, Tahira, for the benefit of our listeners, I mean, there's something that you had mentioned in your article that I read. You'd mentioned that people would assume that you were not born Muslim. Talk to us about that. I mean, how do you feel about that when you walk into a space and people assume that you are, like, as you mentioned in the article that you've written, they would assume that you would either be Sudanese or Somali. And yeah, talk to us about that assumptions that people make about you as a black American Muslim. Yeah, so, um, like, outwardly, my parents, you know, I, I wear a hijab, I, I wear modest clothing, so, you know, it's not until really they, they start talking to me and they ask, you know, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from America. Um, you know, they're like, where are you from, from? And I'm like, I'm African-American, actually <laughs> born and raised here. My parents are born and raised here. Um, and then that's when it starts to, to, they start to second guess, you know, my religiosity. Um, although, like, I do consider myself to be, you know, very practicing. And I, I work really hard to uh, learn my dean. And um, it's, it's hard to, you know, uh, communicate that. Um, to people, you know, right when you meet them, when you're meeting them, but then they're they're second guessing you, especially, you know, my parents they they call me Tahira, um, but uh, I started to use like Tahira um, as my, you know, at, when I'm introducing myself, um, even though that's it's not the natural way for me, but just to make people understand that, you know, I I, I know the proper pronunciation of my name because. It, then they would go and they would be like, oh, do you know that your name means pure um, in Arabic? And I'm like, yes, actually, I do know that. Um, so it's it's kind of, it, it was difficult, you know, learning how to present myself um, within the community. And it's kind of like, when I, when I thought about it, I, I you know, I thought it was like code switching, like kind of how uh, a lot of like, you know, black Americans usually sometimes when they're in, in um, places of work with, you know, white majority people, they, they code switch to make sure that they're, that people recognize them more. Um, and so I feel like I, I kind of code switch when I'm in the Muslim community um, just to be able to have the certain level of like recognition that like, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're on the same boat. Um, not, not a new Muslim here, beginner, um, uh, you know, just to be able to have that kind of confidence that, you know, I, that I feel like I'm, I'm more belonging with them. Um, yeah. especially I'm sorry. With I'm sorry. I have to break more it. Yeah. I'm sorry. I need to understand something before. What is code switching? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, code switching. Um, code switching is kind of like using different vernacular, different different words to, um, you know, based on where you are, uh, based on the group that you're in. So sometimes, um, sometimes like maybe black Americans will use more more kind of a colloquial like dialogue when speaking to each other, but, you know, with, with their friends. But then. And then you enter, um, you know, more like a white space and, and you recognize that like, oh, I'm going to be treated a certain way if I don't like sound very like, you know, very white preppy kind of uh, clean cut dialogue, like using my best, uh, my highest level of, of vocabulary that I know just so that I can fit into uh, fit into this group. And so that they're not going like, to look down on me. Um, that's kind of generally code switching. OK, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, it's kind of like also one could say 
it's like adapting to your environment where you know, for example, when there are certain, when you are with your friends of color, there's certain colloquialisms, certain cultural things that you will understand as a reference because you grew up with it. So, but if you are around people of another group with its cultural or race, you kind of like have to adapt and use words that they would understand. Instead of like going into your colloquial, right. yeah, cool culture. Okay, yeah. so I want to come back to the Muslim American experience, um, particularly the black Muslim American experience. Do you think that mainstream Muslim American organizations, okay, do you think that they relegate racism and racism within the Muslim community as side concerns. Is it something that they are even willing to address, especially since we consider that black people in America already face racism from this system, you know, whether it's the police, whether it's the slavery, kind of, uh, the, if I can say the after effects of slavery, because that's maybe the impression that some white people still have of, American, of, of black Americans. But do you think that the Muslim American organizations are confronting it? Are they even willing to confront it? Or is it just a side concern for them? They may be more concerned with making sure that the masjids are built or making sure that there's madrasa classes. I don't know whatever other issues they may have. Yeah, I, I, do, I don't think it's a, a central concern. I, I think, inshallah, now, from now on, you know, it will be on their forefront or at least the, the bigger institutions um, will make a bigger point of it. But in, in the past, it hasn't been a big issue. Um, I think g- generally the word like activism and, um, you know, what, what that means to Muslims has been really uh, con- a little bit controversial and li- within the U.S., and especially in the more like conservative um, misogyn, um, just figuring out like what what that means to us, like you know what reliance on on God, like what to, you know what's tawakkul to us, like sh- should we just focus on reliance to Him and, and, and praying for change, or should we actually get out there and like take a stance on certain things? Um, you know, people people aren't really sure. Um, I think the racism plays into that because. You know, generally within the cultures that make up the American Muslim, you know, um, the American Muslim demographic, they they don't think well of people with darker skin, um, you know, people uh, that are, are black American. Um, the, in fact, one friend um, told me a story about uh, an, an older gentleman. Um, he he immigrated from from overseas, and he he always um, his his perception of, of black Americans was that they were murderers and thieves because that's what he saw in Hollywood on television. But when he came to the U.S., it, it completely changed, um, and he didn't. He no longer saw that. But but my, my point is that the perception um, is already kind of it's sullied. So so um, you know it's not on the forefront because it's just you know black people in general aren't aren't the first thing that they think about. Um, so I I mean I think that going forward when when um, you know, if institutions or Muslim institutions are thinking about, you know, what problems of, of social justice issues that they can address, what what things are they going to tackle? I think that uh, focusing on protection of black lives um, will be something that they that they center on, um, you know, but in the past, uh, it, racism like co- colored that as as putting that as a something that was um, a priority. It, it wasn't before at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's take another break and we'll still have Tyra back after this break. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, the voice of the Cape. 
We are now drawing to the close of our show and our last guest this evening is speaking to us all the way from San Francisco in the United States. Taira, I'm almost done. I just have one more question. Um, do you think that the issue of racism intersects with all issues of social justice in Islam? You know, it seems almost like racism is being uh, if I can say uh, put in its own category and once we deal with this issue or once we deal with all the other issues sorry then we can deal with this issue but isn't there perhaps an intersection doesn't it all intersect intersect with whether it's with inequality whether it comes to sort of like the way we uh, need to stand up for Muslims in general as opposed to just saying that racism is the last on the list we still have all these other things to sort out you know but what, what do you think is there is there like an intersection between all of it yeah I, I definitely think that that's a good way to put it. i think racism you know there's a little bit in in everything that um in any systemic problem that we're dealing with um especially for you know wealth inequality um that's always a major issue with um you know black um black and brown people being at the bottom um of 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 a wealth pyramid because we don't, you know, we aren't given the resources, given the opportunities or the education um, to be able to fix fix those, um, to get to the top. Um, so I, I definitely think that, that, you know, racism needs to consistently be addressed. Um, and it's not something that, you know, it's it's a one and done deal. It's it's something that we'll have to address in, in every instance of what, whatever cause we're, we're trying to resolve or, or, you know, find solutions to um, or to correct. We're going to have to address racism again and again. Mm-hmm. And do you think the ulama and religious leaders should use their platforms to discuss social justice, you know, through the lens of Islam, such as racism? Do you think that our leaders should do more? Yeah, I, I think that um, we are starting to see them talk about it more and more, and I think that it's a great way for us to start. Um, there, we do have some um, nonprofits like Muslim Arc uh, in the U.S. where they they have trainings that they've developed um, to go into our communities um, into Masjid and and teach people about like the, the microaggressions um, and um, you know ha- like how to get uh, choose uh, minority um, groups um, you know Black Americans or African Americans to be uh, people on the board to serve in Power, uh, positions of leadership, um, because you know that's that's where where change will start if if we're starting to be more inclusive and in, in pretty much every way that we can um, think of, and and it's our leaders that are going to are going to um, lead us in, in doing this. Um, the conversation will start in the home, but ultimately it's going to be um, our leaders that will continue to remind us again and again, even when the news cycle shifts. Um, they're going to remind us that this is something that we need to prioritize um, and build give us the guidance and um, through prophetic teachings and through Quranic um, teachings to be able to um, address and, and correct those issues. Mm-hmm. Well, Taira, shukran so much for joining us all the way from San Francisco. We wish you all the best with your work. And of course, we are following the news in America about the Black Lives Movement. Shukran so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jazakallah so listeners, shukran so much for joining us this evening on our show. Of course, it was a tough topic that we dealt with, but it was an important topic. I didn't get to all the voice notes, or sorry, all the, the messages that came through, but maybe I can just get one in. Um, listener Trip 1111 says, We as Muslims are always posting about Islam. 
that had Bilal as our first black Mu'adhin and we are proud about it. But in reality, we also talk about those K's. Now, we all know what that K word means. It's a word that we inherited from our past, but it's certainly not one we need to continue with into our future. So as Muslims, it's important that we stand up against racism and we certainly hope that you will do your bit in your community as well. From myself, Yazid Kamaldin, Assalamu Alaikum. Thank you.